Want to dig into some of the same research I used for leads in the Murder Etc. investigation? Check out newspapers.com, the biggest and best online newspaper database. If you want seven free days of access to newspapers.com, just go to murderetcpodcast.com slash newspapers. Now, here's episode 20, Dead End Country Road. Raymond Bugs Hassey's world was the criminal underworld. And the thing about living in the underworld... Country pulls out a sawed-off shotgun and just jams it in Hassey's ribs and pulls the trigger. It's a much shorter trip to finding yourself six feet under. Frank Walker's got a 22 shooting him in the back of the head because there's blood everywhere. On a February night in 1975... Bugs Hassey took his last ride around Greenville County. He didn't live long enough to know just how bloody and frantic the end of that ride turned out to be. And they don't know what to do. They're afraid to ride around with all this blood. You met Bugs and his killers way back in episode three, Ghost Bridge. So they call Ballard George. He comes up and gets them. You met Ballard George, a mechanic from West Greenville. The kind of guy you'd call if you needed a tune-up, an alignment, or a contract killer. Burn their clothes, clean the car up, and all that stuff. You're listening to Billy Wilkins, who in 1975 was the prosecutor in pursuit of justice for Bugs Hassey. To get it, Wilkins had to first catch the killers, a former cop named Frank Walker, and an imposing, scowling bad man brought up on the Carolina coast, Raymond Country Small. Back to country, which is an interesting story. And he was probably one of the most dangerous persons I've ever met in my life. He was a killer. These others would kill, but he was a killer. Walker and Small killed Hassey in February 1975. But it took the cops eight months to crack the case. Even then, they had no idea where Country Small was. Word was, he had disappeared somewhere down in Florida, which was just fine with a woman married to the man who set up the murders. Bala George White, his wife, I, she didn't like all these hoodlums gathering at their home out on Cedar Lane Road, and they did quite frequently in the garage behind their home. Ballard George's buddies could be described kindly as good old boys, or more plainly, as drunken scoundrels. But they would pull the cars up in the parking area behind the end, going in, drink beer, and playing their robberies, I guess. Among Ballard's drinking buddies, a guy who wasn't just a man who would kill, but a man many folks say was a born killer. And she didn't like Country Small either because she, she was afraid of him. Billy Wilkins and Greenville County deputies scoured the city and countryside for country, but they came up with nothing but empty streets and pasture land. Until one day, when Wilkins was putting in some overtime at the office. I walked in the solicitor's office about 5 o'clock one Sunday in my office, and my phone's ringing. Nobody was there, but my phone's ringing. So I picked it up. Alone at his desk, Wilkins listened. This female said to me, country is at our home. We're leaving in about 30 minutes to go to Atlanta. Ballard is driving. I'll be in the passenger seat. Country will be in the back seat. He's armed with a rifle and a pistol. 
The woman, Wilkins says, was Ballard George's wife, trying to drop the dime on Country Small while Country was in the next room. She was talking very softly because just in another room, you know. What do you do? What do you do? I mean, so I just picked up the phone. I called the highway patrol. And the guy that picked up the phone was Sergeant then Harold Smith. What happens next seems ridiculous in the context of modern law enforcement. Wilkins says he not only called in the tip, he joined the hunt himself. I said, can, can we meet and set up some checkpoints between here and the Georgia line, catch this guy? He responded just like that, and we met at, right there on White Horse Road, close to 85. So you have to picture this. Billy Wilkins, a dignified man, the kind who wore a suit and once worked for Senator Strom Thurmond. Had about six cards. He sent one of them all the way to the Georgia line, then he backed back this way, and um, I got in the car with him. Billy Wilkins, hopping in a South Carolina Highway Patrol car as part of a dragnet along the fastest corridor in the Carolinas, Interstate 85. And so we had cars along the 85 car to headed south. He gets a call on the radio and he says, Sergeant said, I think we got the car spotted, but it's pulling a trailer. Harold looked at me, I said, well, I don't know anything about a trailer. They'd planned a routine bust on the least routine of killers in the tri-state area. So the idea was gonna just pull them over like they're speeding, license check, routine stuff, come back, get the drop on country. But now, the troopers on the radio were describing a car pulling a trailer. A trailer was not part of the plan. About a little bit later, the radio breaks again, and the trooper says, that's a false alarm. Sergeant said, that as a couple from New Jersey going to Florida. <laughs> but they were driving the same car. It looked as if Country Small was going to slip away again. But even though there were five other state patrol cars between Greenville and the Georgia state line. But it wasn't long, Harold was the closest to Greenville and he had an unmarked car. Wilkins says it just so happened, his buddy Harold, the guy in the driver's seat next to him, spotted Ballard George's car headed south. And all of a sudden, they had come and passed right by us. So Harold got behind the car and, and pulled him over. I stayed in the car, he got out and checked his license. Wilkins watched from the trooper's car as his friend eased up to the vehicle and slowly put his hand on his hip and the grip of his pistol. I could see him sliding his hand down. All of a sudden, he did like that inside the car. Just Wilkins says Sergeant Harold Smith lunged for the car window and leveled his gun on one of Greenville County's most wanted men. When he put the pistol on Country, and Country didn't resist. Country Small ended up in handcuffs and police collected country's small personal arsenal. Yeah, but he did have a loaded M1 carbine at his feet and a pistol in his pants pocket. You know. So he was arrested and he ended up dying in prison. That is a hell of a story on its own. One that sounds like it might close the books on country, close the books on Frank Walker, and close out their part in this story. Thing is, this story that sounds like an ending. It's just the beginning. I'm Brad Willis. This is Murder, Etc.
Over the past 19 episodes of Murder, Etc., you've heard this phrase more than almost any. Within 24 hours of the Lucas being murdered, word on the street is it's Wacky Wakefield. Eventually, you heard about the other word on the street, about how cops investigating the Looper murders built an elaborate case against a different man. After being essentially cornered in the bathroom by one of the cops, tells a story. And that story is that Larry Poole, the fugitive on the run for the murder. Larry Poole was that other suspect before he and the case against him vanished into never recorded history, leaving behind just a hint of what we'd be hearing 44 years later. She tells the cops that somebody had also seen Larry Poole that day driving around in a red Camaro with Frank Walker. There's only one time in all 750 pages of the Looper murder police file that you'll read Frank Walker's name. Walker was just a cameo in the investigation, a bit part that a Hollywood script might only call Man with Larry Poole or Guy in Camaro. Because as far as prosecutors and the Looper murder investigators were concerned, the word on the street was Wacky Wakefield. And if that wasn't the right word on the street, then Larry Poole was. Those might have been the words in the first 24 hours. But over the next 44 years, the word on the street has turned into something more like the word down a long, dead-end country road. And even if we'd all come to believe the cops had no interest in Frank Walker, well, it turns out we were just talking to the wrong cops. It's time you meet Harold Lee, who in the early part of 1975 was patiently waiting for someone at the sheriff's office to process his application. I was working construction and also working some part-time at Briss's garage. The garage once belonged to the late coroner of Greenville County, a man named Mercer Brissy, murdered in his own garage 18 months earlier. Harold bided his time, working at the Brissy garage, doing what he knew how to do. Record driver, general mechanic work, mainly a lot of the electrical work. Garage work wasn't Lee's ambition. It was simply what he knew how to do. I learned quite a deal along those lines and many other areas from my father. It was one of the cases, if you didn't have the money to pay to have it done, you learned to do it yourself. One day in late February 1975, someone showed up at the garage and asked Lee for his help. Someone came down to the garage and specifically asked if I could go. Wanted me to go with Mr. Ivan Nagman to look at a car. That was all it said to start with. Ivan Nachman. Maybe you'll remember that name. He was very serious. He, he was somewhat quiet. I mean, there was not a lot of conversation going up. Lee was going to the base of Paris Mountain with Ivan Nachman the new internal affairs investigator for the sheriff's office. They wanted me to take a door of a vehicle apart, take the inside panels and everything apart in that car. If it sounded like a weird request, Harold thought nothing of it. He'd worked on deputies' cars all the time. And as he rode with Nachman to Paris Mountain, only one thing seemed weird to Harold. One thing that stands out in my mind, and I have no explanation for it, when we got up on Paris Mountain, on a bit of a dirt road there where there was a car just parked there. There were no other deputies around. There was nobody around the car. It just seemed odd to me that it was involved in a homicide. Even not being in law enforcement, I thought, well, why'd they just leave it out here? That homicide? The death 
of Raymond Bugs Hassey. Harold Lee went to work. You have to remove door handles. Digging through the car where Bugs Hassey died. It's a little armrest on the door. You have to take the screws off to get that. Trying to find evidence. And then clips hold the inside door panel out. To explain why Bugs ended up on the deadly end of that shotgun blast. Country pulls out a sawed-off shotgun and just jams it in Hassey's ribs and pulls the trigger. Every time I've heard and told this story, I've imagined a shotgun spray, 20 to 30 shotgun pellets, ripping through Hassey's torso as Walker put a 22 bullet in his head from behind. But Lee says Country Small had loaded up his shotgun with something else. Mr. Knackman actually reached into the door and retrieved the shotgun slug. A shotgun slug? A slug is a one-piece lead projectile. It is the diameter of the inside of the shotgun shell, and there is only one within what's referred to as a shotgun slug. There are no pellets. After that slug tore through Hassey, it tore into the car door. Where that shotgun slug had hit the interior, it had flattened out to about the size of a half dollar. More than 44 years later, Harold remembers that half dollar sized flattened shotgun slug like he'd found it yesterday. Not just because it was an extraordinary day in the life of a garage mechanic, but because just a few months later, Lee took a new job he'd worked for more than three decades as a Greenville County Sheriff's deputy. I had had an interest for a long time and had made an effort to be hired. And some of that interest came about through my association and limited friendship with Frank Looper. If you listen to the episode before this one, episode 19, True Believer, you heard Danny Jones, a man inspired to be a narc by Greenville County Sheriff's Lieutenant Frank Looper. Jones was not the only man Looper inspired. I was devastated when he, he was murdered. I, I mean, it hit me. It was just a cloud over me. It just hurt. It hurt to have a friend killed like that. Harold Lee, just like Danny Jones, just like Frank Looper, was a narc. If you've looked at that picture on our website, the one of the narcs that looks like the 1970s country rock supergroup. We joke about it. We didn't have to go out and work. People would come up to us begging us to buy their dope. Harold Lee is the one in the red bandana. Just like Danny was able to realize his dream, I was. Ultimately, when an opening came in the narcotics unit, I was assigned to that position. I was at the sheriff's office for almost 35 years. Harold went to work a few months after Frank Looper died. And while I didn't know what, if anything, Harold could offer when I called him, I thought he might be able to tell me more about the contract killers who finished off Bugs Hassey's last ride. For Harold, Country Small was just a ghost. But Frank Walker... The first time I heard the name Frank Walker was actually when I met him. Harold didn't meet Walker in a jailhouse or a courthouse. He met him at a drive-in, long before anyone ever called Frank Walker a killer. Back then, they called him Deputy Frank Walker, one of the few black deputies on the street. And, for a while, a narcotics officer working alongside Frank Looper. My mother and I owned a drive-in restaurant down on Augusta Road in Greenville. Frank Walker would stop in to eat. It became pretty regular at least once a week. To be truthful, my mother thought the world of Frank Walker. He had a fantastic personality. He was friendly. You could tell he was smart and somewhat educated. I mean, he just seemed to get along with everybody. That Frank Walker 
the friendly neighborhood deputy, is the same Frank Walker who would later admit to murder for hire, to putting a gun to Bugs Hassey's head, shooting him, and dumping him on Paris Mountain. And Brad, in my mind, if something hadn't happened and Frank Walker got connected with the wrong group, he would have made one of the finest officers that Greenville County had ever known. He would have retired from there. He would have been an exceptional law enforcement officer. When Harold Lee learned Frank Walker was responsible for the murder in that car he had torn apart, Harold had to notify the family, his own family, that Frank Walker was not who they thought he was. You know, I told my mom. She was shocked. She couldn't believe it. She she just hated that it had happened. And in her, her nature, she said, you know, you just never can tell things like that happen. Harold's mom couldn't believe it. The friendly guy who ate hot food at her drive-in once a week was capable of cold-blooded murder. But Harold says many of his fellow deputies weren't surprised at all that one of their former brothers behind the badge had turned into a contract killer. You know, they weren't surprised by it. The past several months, he had changed in everything. He had left the sheriff's office, and there was more coming to light of things that he was involved in of a criminal nature. Danny Jones, the narc who later posed for that rock and roll narc photo with Harold Lee, he says most people knew Lieutenant Bub Skelton was crooked. They knew Fast Eddie Williamson was dangerous. And even though he hadn't been in town for long, they knew Country Small's bloodstream ran like the Chattooga River, quick and cold. A lot of these guys carried a big reputation. Country Small, he'd get you. And then you got somebody like Frank that was just mentally ill or something, I don't know, drugged up or money, I don't know what it was. You would have never thought that you know, a uniformed deputy would ever be the one to do something like this. Jones doesn't mean Walker was in uniform at the time of the murders. He just means, how could anyone who ever wore a uniform, anyone who ever wore a badge, turn out to be someone like Frank Walker? It may be impossible to answer that question, but if we're gonna get anywhere close to an answer, we'll need to consult with a man from the 1970s underworld who can still talk with authority and experience about the private lives of Greenville County, South Carolina's most well-known villains. We need to go back to Fast Eddie. Well, let's, let's go back to when I first met Frank Walker. That is coming up right after this break. You want to know what's cool? Reading the actual news stories written about what you're hearing on the Murder Etc. podcast. When I got hold of the police file on the Looper murders, I thought I'd never find anything more valuable to this investigation. And then I found newspapers.com. Now I have literally hundreds of newspaper clippings about this story stored in my own personal database, and I never had to leave my house to get them. When I signed up, I just hoped I'd find a couple of articles about Frank Looper. Three years later, I'm still finding important information that's driving this story toward the truth. Newspapers.com is a searchable online newspaper archive with thousands of papers in its database. If you think Google is a good research tool, you will not believe Newspapers.com. Type in anything you want, a name, a place, a date, a newspaper. Within seconds, you'll learn things you've never known before. You'll find the actual news about whatever story you're looking for, recent history, things that happened in the 1700s, or even your own family's past. Whether you're a genealogist, a journalist, 
or just someone who's curious about how the news was reported on any story, a subscription to newspapers.com is the best money you will ever spend. It's like having a secret password to history that everyone else has forgotten or never knew. But don't take my word for it. Try it for yourself. Murder Etc. listeners get seven free days of access to the entire newspapers.com database. For your free week, just visit murderetcpodcast.com slash newspapers. And when you get there, just type Lieutenant Frank Looper into the search bar and see what happens. Again, for your free week of newspapers.com, go to murderetcpodcast.com slash newspapers. Fast Eddie Williamson is doing life in federal prison. Trying to get him to talk about anything on the record is an almost impossible task. But after a year of talking to him off the record... Well, let's, let's go back to when I first met Frank Walker. Eddie finally agreed to tell me what he knew about Frank Walker. I wouldn't have even asked him about Walker if it hadn't been for the fact that for months and months, long before I ever met or spoke to Danny Jones or Harold Lee, anonymous phone calls, off-the-record conversations, secret meetings on Saturday mornings with old cops, text messages, emails, all of them about a one-time Greenville County Sheriff's deputy and confessed contract killer named Frank Walker. Almost no one wants to go on the record about Walker. Eddie didn't want to go on the record about anything at all for nearly a year. But finally, when I never thought he would, Fast Eddie said he'd talk. I didn't know Frank when he was on a narcotic squad, okay? When he was an acting undercover agent. But he worked under Frank Luper, all right? He had to work under Frank Luper because Frank Luper was over the narcotic squad. That's right. There was a time Frank Luper and Frank Walker stood side by side. Narcs, busting up the Greenville County drug world. In fact, Walker hadn't even been on the job a month before he made a heroin bust with Frank Luper. After graduating from Greenville's historic Sterling High School in 1967, Walker went into the Army. He served, according to his application to the Sheriff's Office, until 1970 and his honorable discharge. When Walker came home, he found work, but not the kind of work he liked. He spent a year as a shipping clerk, and then a couple of months working in the Winn-Dixie grocery store warehouse. That's when Frank Walker decided he was going to try to become a cop. Retired Greenville City Police Officer Melvin Croft remembers it well. Actually, Frank, they interviewed Frank for the city job the same time they interviewed me. Walker also turned in an application to be a deputy. Danette Green, a woman who worked in law enforcement in every decade since then, processed those applications for a while. When we processed it, they would send us the applications and then they would send it back once it was date stamped and then you did the background and set up for the interview with whomever he was interviewed with. On his application, Frank Walker listed his personal details. 23 years old, six foot one, 186 pounds, Baptist. He listed a couple of preachers and the owner of a radiator shop as references. And then in a section labeled remarks, he wrote, quote, this kind of work is more my kind of life anyway. Walker dated that application November 2nd, 1971. Six months later, in May 1972, someone at the sheriff's office, probably Danette, stamped it as received. Within days, Frank Walker was a Greenville County Sheriff's deputy under Sheriff Bob Martin and his lieutenant, Bob Skelton. 
More than four decades later, Melvin Croft still recalls Walker's reputation. Frank just couldn't seem to do things according to the system. He wanted to go against the grain. Dad told Frank one time, you can't do that. A lot of things that I do, I don't think it's right, but that's part of the procedure. But he was constantly trying to change the rules and regulations of the sheriff's department. Nevertheless, Walker got the job, and according to Danette Green, found love with the first black female officer in Greenville. Her name was Gloria, and I remember her coming up and everybody congratulating, and county officer married a city officer, and she was one of the first black female officers hired. And she was a real nice person. I just remember seeing her. I remember being up there, and at that time, you know, wives would come pick up checks sometimes. What might have looked like the beginning of a law enforcement power couple was over by the end of 1974. And then I remember, Frank, all the trouble started. I remember her coming up not soon after that, talking with somebody about it, and then he was gone. And then the details, of course, came out later. That's when Walker left the sheriff's office under circumstances that are still unclear. He got run off from that because of some crooked dealings. I don't know exactly what the dealings were. You might be able to find those out. No one ever officially charged Walker with a crime while he wore a badge. But there are several signed statements that suggest Walker might have had some problems with some chickens. Two fellow deputies said they saw Walker steal several chickens and some cigarettes from an A&P store while on duty. In 1975, Walker readily admitted to committing contract murder, but he always denied taking those chickens. Regardless of why Walker left, Fast Eddie says Walker quickly took up with a man you've heard about here more than once. He started hanging around with Jackie Dell. Jackie Dell, the weak person he is, was, rather than don't say he is, he was, he loved Frank to death. Jackie Delk, if he didn't catch Eddie's drift, is dead now. But back in early 1975, Delk and Frank Walker got along just fine. Around the very same time Jackie was busting into drugstores, Frank Walker, according to at least one person in the know, was also busting into convenience stores. You probably remember Leonard Brown, the security company owner who had contracts all over Greenville including some convenience stores. One day, Brown got a tip. Frank Walker was going to try to break into one of those stores. Brown set out to catch him in the act. They're going to break in that damn handy, Mark. And so they're trying to find a sledgehammer now to break through the back wall. <laughs> so I went up there and sat all damn night and never did show up. I sat up there where I could get there quick, you know. <laughs> never did show up. Brown tracked down his tipster and said, what happened? And he said, oh, hell, I got smoking marijuana and roamed around and just forgot about it. Just didn't show up. Went and done something else. And this is where we get into what might be one of the most classic Leonard Brown stories ever told. So Frank Walker was involved in it. Here's Leonard Brown, an eccentric security genius, a crusader for ethics and law enforcement, and a storyteller of the first order. Frank come around and talked to Billy Ledbetter a while because he thought that Billy Ledbetter run the mafia. Billy Ledbetter, you've heard about him before too. Remember when Bub Skelton was yelling at Leonard Brown? How many people did you tell you gonna tell the eyes gonna come pick Bub up? You didn't tell Billy that, huh? I told Billy that that guy told me Atlanta what that guy told. You are a goddamn liar. You told Billy one high Bub's gonna be on the FBI gonna pick you up. Ledbetter was a cop in City View, a community on Greenville's west side. He'd also been a sheriff's deputy with Bub Skelton. Brown says Frank Walker thought Ledbetter 
a country boy without much of a formal education, was running the mafia in Greenville County. And why would he think that? Well, Leonard Brown and Billy Ledbetter had this on-again, off-again friendship back then. One day I sat with Brown and his son, trying not to laugh so hard that I couldn't listen, as Brown talked about how bad he wanted to nail Frank Walker for busting into those convenience stores. I talked Billy into bugging his car and telling Frank that he had bought the mafia from Bub Skelton. <laughs> he bought the mafia from Bub Skelton. Oh, come Skelton. on, it's plausible. <laughs> and, and he, well, the damn police thought they was running the damn mafia. Okay, they were so right. stupid, they thought right. it was. The idea was to convince Frank Walker that Billy Ledbetter, a cop, was now a major player in local organized crime. So Billy supposedly bought their racket. Bought racket. <laughs> bought Bub's racket. All right, now go ahead. <laughs> so Billy didn't know if he'd buy that or not, but I said, hell, they'll buy it. I think they'll buy it. You know, they're so stupid. So with his police car wired for sound, Billy Ledbetter gets Walker riding around with him and then decides to do something covert operatives will tell you is probably a bad idea. Billy Ledbetter decided to ad-lib. So Billy got telling about that and telling him he needs some damn help, but he couldn't hire nobody that wasn't a damn criminal that done killed somebody and all this shit, you know. Now, exactly what being a killer has to do with breaking into convenience stores, I don't know. But according to the Browns and two other people who've heard the tape, it got Walker talking about, well, pretty much everything. Billy gets Walker riding around with him one night. We have his car bug. Billy rides around with him, and they talk about every damn thing in the world, and he tells him about how much he loves old Eddie. Eddie Williamson tells him about going and help him steal a fence for his house. That's what he was in jail with. And there was more. Much more. I carried that information, that tape, to Wilkins and them solicitor. I didn't know what the hell to do with it, you know. I got him talking about murdering somebody. And Walker started talking about murder. He shot him behind the ear with a pistol. Contract murder. They found his body up on Parish Mountain. That's where the silly story takes a turn to scary. Because sure, if a guy's wanting to impress someone that he thinks is a criminal, he'll talk big. But Walker was straight up confessing to murder for hire, and along with Country Small, killing Bugs Hassey. And Walker wasn't talking big. He was talking the truth. Ledbetter eventually drives Walker to a creek at the base of Paris Mountain, where Walker says he dumped his pistol. Ledbetter says they better make sure nobody else finds it. So they get out, and the flasher lights, you could hear them click, 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 click on the tape forever, you know, saying like forever they don't get back in the car. They're out looking for the damn gun, but they don't find it. According to the story, that's when Walker starts talking tough again. He says Small's all tore up in. He's scared to death, got blood all over him. Making it out that he's meaner and tougher than the legendary meanest of the mean, Country Small. He said, I went up there to the phone, he hid in the bushes, and I went to the payphone in front of the zippy mark up here and called up somebody to come and get us. Leonard Brown says he carried that tape up to prosecutor Billy Wilkins' office. Wilkins didn't tell me that part of the story, but he did say this. I really think Frank Walker was, in another circumstance, would have been a good law enforcement officer. He was smart. He had a pretty good heart. It just this climate. It's so, I mean, it was lawlessness. And if you were a cop, you didn't matter. You crossed the line. If you wanted to, nothing's going to happen to you. Crossing the line, Wilkins says, was a way of life for a lot of cops. And as the legend tells it, Walker had not just crossed the line. He'd used it for a jump rope. 
Wilkins says Walker had to pay with a guilty plea and, if necessary, testimony against Raymond Country Small. Hey, I told him, I said, Frank, you plead, you're going to get life now, you know, and I want you to testify. Country was on the run at that time, but he said he would. A few months later, Wilkins and company ran down Country on I-85, and as far as a lot of people were concerned, if this had been a movie, that's where Walker's cameo would end, where Walker would exit stage left, just another forgotten villain. Turns out, that movie's got a sequel. I knew and followed the trial somewhat through the news, and I knew we'd gotten some time, and then I knew about Hesse and the murders. You know, I read that in the newspapers probably just like everybody else at that time. Danette Green did just about every kind of job you can imagine in law enforcement, from processing applications to going out on the street with a gun on her hip. And though she loved it, 12 years into her career, she took a short break. I had left the sheriff's office in 1984 to go to work with my brother and father. It was their dream, my father's in particular, to have a family business. He just wanted us all to be together, and it worked out good. It was during that time away from law enforcement when her first career and her second met in the middle, in the most innocent of places. We had an office located at the farmer's market over the retail section, and my brother's warehouse was on the lower part. He'd call me up there, and he said, come down here, I need to ask you something. Danette walked through the farmer's market, a sprawling facility within eyeshot of a pre-release prison facility down the street that sometimes sent its trusted prisoners over to do some work. And he was bringing this guy around and introduced him to my brother as, this is so-and-so, he's a former deputy, and he's been he's serving time for murder. Well, it got my brother's attention when they said sheriff's office and murder. And he said, do you know that guy? And I looked and I said, well, yeah, I do. He said, are you scared of him? Would you be scared for him to be out here? Danette Green is about four feet, nine inches tall. But it's hard to scare her. She handles a pistol better than most folks. And she figured if the state trusted a guy enough to let him out on work release, who was she to say otherwise? Her brother wasn't as easily convinced. He wasn't sure, you know, should he give his approval. Why were we even asking for approval? Because I don't remember any other inmate ever being out there that they asked for that. And maybe it was the fact that he was convicted of murder. I don't know. That was the question. Would you be afraid to work around a convicted murderer? The answer might have been different if the market manager had asked the question in a different way. Maybe, hey, would you be afraid to work with a contract killer who shot a man in the back of the head and then dumped his body on that mountain right over there? Would you be afraid if that man's name was Frank Walker? Danette told me this story a long time ago, and I was sure she must have had her years mixed up because she was telling this story as if it happened in the early 1980s, and Frank Walker had gotten a life sentence in 1976, a life sentence just like Country Small Guy. They'd literally committed the exact same murder and I knew what had happened to Country. Country Small spent decades writing letter after letter after letter, begging and pleading to be transferred to easier prisons, to get parole, to get any sort of mercy at all. He hadn't fought the charges against him. He pleaded guilty just like Walker. Country Small died in prison, and Walker never spent more than a couple of days in a maximum security facility. How could he, when he had all that work to do at the farmer's market? Danette started noticing things, like Frank Walker driving a van, not just around the farmer's market, but out onto the public streets, just as free as a man who'd never taken money 
to shoot a man in the back of the head. And I also realized he didn't do a whole lot of work. Danette says the normal trustees weren't usually allowed to take afternoon drives because the price of freedom was one of the worst jobs at the farmer's market, hosing down the runoff from the neighboring chicken plant. When they come in and out, there was a lot of pour off of the blood and guts, just to put it mildly. And the stench was terrible. Part of their job was to keep that hose down, especially in the summertime, because the odor was terrible. That, Danette says, is what Walker should have been doing. He didn't work a whole lot. I never remember seeing much of him at all. I saw him where Syracuse Produce, S&S Produce was located. But I do know that he spent the night in that little office on a cot they put out, because we saw that. And he was coming and going pretty much as he pleased. There didn't, didn't seem to be any restrictions. At one time, Danette had no idea what became of Frank Walker before or after he left the farmer's market. But I do. I went back and looked through what I could get of Walker's prison record, year by year. Two days after checking into the maximum security Kirkland prison, somebody had Walker transferred up to the more relaxed confines of the Pickens County Jail. Walker bounced around county jails for several years, and only a year after getting busted for having contraband, on January 31st, 1981, Walker started doing work release out in the community. He was six years into a life sentence, and Frank Walker was free to roam. It's funny how our paths have crossed over the years several times. I don't know if it's telling me something or just plain odd. Maybe it was all innocent. And Frank Walker, as Wilkins said, was a man with a good heart. Maybe no one should have been scared, even though at the very same time, another murderer out on work release from the same facility raped and killed a 75-year-old woman. Or maybe... Not everybody heard this story. Danette has a deputy friend, a woman she won't publicly name, who was out on the road in the early 1980s. Danette says this woman pulled up to a van parked in a dark warehouse district. A man was rummaging around inside that van, and the deputy asked for his ID. According to the story, the man said he'd just been looking for his driver's license. And then, leaned up against the deputy's cruiser. He propped up on her car, her county marked car, and she's in uniform. He said, you don't know who I am. You don't know me? She said, no. You don't know who I am. I'm Frank Walker. I'm one of the gangland killers. Gangland killers. If it sounds like something ripped out of the headlines, it is. When deputies pulled Bugs Hassey's body off the mountain, the newspaper wrote it up with a headline, calling it a gangland killing. The net says her friend picked up her radio and keyed the button to talk with a click. She radioed in the name Frank Henry Walker Jr. Now, imagine the sound of every one of her fellow deputies lunging for their radio at the same time. And that radio, she said, started going click, 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 click. Her supervisor immediately, what's your location? What's your 1020? Got to her as quickly as they could to check this guy out. He was still there being, from what she said, somewhat cocky. They did not arrest him, did not bring him in. Where he was supposed to be, I don't know. But he was out. I've not independently verified this story. But Danette, 
the first person to email me if she spots the slightest inconsistency in any reporting, believes every word of it. And it's certainly possible, because Walker spent three years on work release at exactly the same time this story takes place. But nothing else happened that night. Walker went on his way, and Danette's friend, well, she's laying low. So that one still makes me wonder to this day. Danette saw Walker one more time at a family picnic for local cops. It was in the late fall, almost turning cold. Hosted at the gun range. My children were there, and I walk in, and I remember looking, and they had tables out for our cookout. There sat Frank Walker. I'm thinking, now what is he doing here? So I asked, somebody whispered in my ear, well, he's dating one of our female sergeants. There he was again, this time enjoying the same freedom he still enjoys today. Because the state of South Carolina granted Frank Walker parole in 1991, 10 years before Country Small died in captivity. Frank Walker, sentenced to life for contract murder, served 15 years of easy time. Over the years of hearing these stories, I've tried to play devil's advocate. Maybe Walker was a better man than Country Small. Maybe he did something to earn his easy time and early parole. I don't know if I'll ever know the truth, but I know this. Fast Eddie Williamson just told me a story. I was over at Jackie's house. And if this story is anywhere close to true. Right behind Ballard George's house. It could put an end to the devil's advocate. Where he had his uh, wheel alignment shop. And turn everyone's attention to the devil himself. Jackie was eating speed. I mean, he, he loved speed to death. And that's the reason he never could get no money, because he was dealing all the drugs for uh, Luke and Bud. But he would eat speed. He would eat about a spoonful. Jackie Delk, a prisoner to his own product, on his way to an overdose, a drug runner's greatest friend, and Frank Walker's running buddy. I guess he had Frank Walker doing it, too. And Frank and them were sitting there, and they were running their mouth. Fast Eddie says on that night, both men were celebrating the early demise of Lieutenant Frank Looper. Well, I'm glad that Frank Looper got killed, blah, blah, blah. Jackie was telling him that. To this day, Fast Eddie maintains he liked and respected Frank Looper. I said, why, Jackie? According to Eddie, Jackie didn't have a chance to respond. And then Frank Walker, Walker spoke up and says, well, I'm the one who killed him. He said, he, he done me dirty. Eddie says he stood up and walked out of the house, refusing to believe the former Greenville County deputy could have done anything so terrible. Eddie says he left because if he'd believed Walker right then, Walker wouldn't be alive today. If, I, if I'd have believed that, I would have wound up shooting him right then because I like Frank Ripper. If I had known that Frank Walker killed him, honest to God, would have shot him right there myself. Today, Eddie doesn't know what to believe, but he's still convinced someone with law enforcement experience killed the Loopers. And all of that said, you should know, Jackie Delk and Frank Walker were one of the reasons Eddie ended up in prison back in the 1970s. You remember that old chain link fence caper? Well, Jackie Delk and Frank Walker gave Eddie up on that one. But I, I pretty much forgave Jackie. Jackie was just, he was just weak, but I never forgave Frank Walker. Like almost everything in this story, you have to listen to what everybody has to say. You have to accept there's still a lot you haven't heard. You have to decide who you can believe. I've done everything I can to hear more, including tracking down Frank Walker, where he lives today. 
Good afternoon, Mr. Willis. This is Frank Walker. You won't find Frank Walker in the phone book. You won't find his name on a deed to any property. In fact, you'd be lucky if you found him at all. But eventually, I did. You've made several attempts to contact me. Living just about as far north in Greenville County as you can get, down a long, dead-end country road in the mountains. In fact, you even sent me a letter by UPS. Almost immediately after getting out on parole in 1991, Frank Walker and a woman named Mildred Gullett moved up to a skinny, six-acre sliver of mountain land where they lived for nine years without electricity and nearly 20 years without running water. They still live there today. Hello, you've reached Mildred and Frank. But they don't answer their phone. I started by mailing letters that went unreturned. I graduated to phone calls. Hi there, this call is for Frank. Those went unreturned for a long time too. I wasn't even sure if Walker was still up there in the mountains until I got confirmation of delivery from a package I sent via UPS. But still, no answer. I hadn't managed to find that necessary carelessness to do something that a younger me, without nearly so much to lose, did countless times as a young man. I was just about to have to make a decision about whether to turn my truck down that dead-end road without knowing what was at the end. And then on January 2nd, 2019, I was traveling and less than two months away from releasing the first episode of Murder, Etc. when I missed a phone call at 1.41 p.m. Good afternoon, Mr. Willis. This is Frank Walker. Of all the calls I wished I hadn't missed in the past three years, this one bothers me more than the rest combined. Here's Frank Walker's message in its entirety. Good afternoon, Mr. Willis. This is Frank Walker. Uh, you've made several attempts to contact me. In fact, you even sent me a letter by UPS. And at this time, uh, I would like for my life to stay quiet. Uh, it's been a long, hard road, and uh, I've had a quiet life, and I could, uh, would love for it to continue to, to stay that way. But I appreciate your offer. But if you have any more questions, uh, try to com contact me by phone. Thank you, my friend. Bye-bye. I'd offered Walker the chance to say whatever he wanted to say. Even before I knew what I knew now, I needed him to take that opportunity because I knew I was going to have to say his name in an episode one day in one way or another. But he refused. He called me friend and he said, bye-bye. I've tried lots of other ways of getting him to talk. I've even been in touch with his parole officer because I think, in one way or another, Frank Walker could clear up a lot of things that are still very confusing about this story. I've tried to call him again since he left that message. In fact, I called him just before this episode came out. Frank, this is Brad Willis. Would still like to speak to you on the phone at some point. Frank Walker remains a mystery, a ghost in the Northern Greenville County Mountains. And yet, people see the ghost from time to time. My children were there, and I walk in, there sat Frank Walker. I'm thinking, now what is he doing here? Not just Annette Green. Billy Wilkins, the man who sent Walker away, saw Walker years later at a warehouse store 
on Greenville's busiest thoroughfare. I remember years later, I was at Sam's on Winters Road shopping, and I heard this guy yelling, Billy, 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 and I looked around, and it was Frank Walker. He was out and got a job out there working. He came up to me like it was home week. And Harold Lee, the 35-year veteran of the sheriff's office, he saw the ghost too. I saw him one time. Frank was walking down the sidewalk on Rutherford Street there, and he recognized me, and he stopped just a minute. All he said to me then was, he said, you're Mr. Lee, aren't you? And I said, yeah, Frank, how you doing? And he said something to the fact, oh, you know, get along. And he just continued walking. Lee became a narcotics officer who built his career on inspiration from Lieutenant Frank Looper. I told him what Fast Eddie told me, that Frank Walker once claimed credit for Lieutenant Frank Looper's murder. This is what retired Deputy Harold Lee had to say about that. Brad? I, I can believe that that was said, and I can believe that it was the truth. Harold is among many current and retired officers who've said the same thing to me, but he is one of the few that will say it on the record. Based on my knowledge of what I had knowledge of, the people I knew, my training, my experience throughout the years with the sheriff's office, brings me to continue to have the opinion that I do. My opinion, and has been for many years, is Charles Wakefield did not kill Frank Looper and his daddy. I will never believe that. That was an opinion that uh, was formed many years before your podcast. Everyone has reasons for their silence. They're worried about their standing in the community. They're worried about relationships with their old friends. And some are just scared. But Harold Lee says, regardless of what happened, Walker has always been the one people whispered about when they talked about the Looper case. In part, because Frank Looper knew Frank Walker. That is, on January 31st, 1975, when a man walked up to the garage at the Looper house, Frank Walker would not have been a stranger. I have felt all along that it had to be somebody that was known to them. And it would not be unreasonable for Frank Walker to have been known to his daddy, too. Just walked in and said, you know, hey, is Frank around or something like that without causing undue alarm. And Harold says it's not only that Looper knew Walker. It's that Walker would actually commit murder for hire only weeks after the Looper murders. Just shortly after that, it was shown that Frank Walker was capable of murder, a murder that he confessed to. So, in my opinion, he cannot be taken out as a possibility of the one that actually was responsible for the killings. Harold's fellow retired narc, Danny Jones, goes a step further. I think everybody thought that. I'll be honest with you, I always thought Frank the one who did it. Danny Jones is an award-winning marksman, a trained sniper. He shot pistols competitively. I asked him to imagine a street kid with a gun, frantic in the middle of a botched robbery, trying to get away, and managing to put a hole in both of the Looper's heads in exactly the same place, while Frank Looper was armed with his own 357. That's almost physically impossible. Just to run and shoot directly in front of you is hard enough, but to try to run away and just throw in rounds, there's no way. First off, they had to see each other. Frank would not have had his back to him. You know, there's just no way that could have happened. 
Harold Lee and Danny Jones are two of the Greenville County cops who knew Frank Looper. The two who finally decided they weren't going to keep their mouths shut anymore. Harold and Danny aren't the only ones out there. A lot of folks will say the name quietly in my ear. But Danny Jones says it aloud. I've always thought that Frank did it. I, it's just the, the description and everything and the way all this stuff went down and all the things that were happening. I guess I'm maybe I'm doing it the wrong way, but I guess I'm, I'm putting him in guilty by association because the people that I know that, that knew about what happened, and I can't prove any of it, but he's right in the center. It, it just, he's just a perfect suspect for it. In 1975, the word on the street was Wacky Wakefield killed the Loopers. That's what Billy Wilkins says. The cops took that word on the street and let it compound like interest, paying dividends with a conviction and a death penalty sentence. No jury ever heard the other word on the street about Larry Poole, nor the word on that country road that so many old cops still whisper today. The name Frank Walker, a confessed killer. From the moment I got a hold of Frank Walker's confession in the Bugs Hassey murder, I've not been able to shake what Walker says in the very first sentence of his statement. The part about drinking beers with Bugs Hassey and Country Small at a bar a couple of miles away from Frank Looper's house. On the night of February 1st, just hours after Frank Looper died. Maybe it means nothing, but I'd like to ask Frank Walker about that. I'd like to ask him about a lot of things including if he felt just as sad, hollow, and hurt as Danny Jones and Harold Lee did on the day the Loopers died. Frank, if you're listening, you know how to find me. This was Murder Etc.'s 20th episode, and I'd like to thank everyone who's supporting the show as we tell the rest of the story. It's amazing to even me that we're this far in, and we still have so much to tell. When I started 20 episodes ago, I never actually planned to ask for donations at any point. Now, my bank account sort of requires it. Here's a look at one of the costs. I filed a request under the Freedom of Information Act about Table Rock Laboratories. The police department just estimated the cost of giving that to me. That cost, $272.50, which is going to come out to just about $2 per page. And that is just a fraction of the cost of this podcast. But those documents are valuable, and I'll be putting some more on our website in the section we call The File very soon. So if you've been thinking about a small donation, you can use your credit card to send one to paypal.me slash murderetc. That's paypal.me slash murder etc or if you like venmo our account is murder etc also check out the front page of our website murderetcpodcast.com on how to join amateurs etc with just a small monthly donation i'd also like to personally thank a woman named andrea durham for her recent support of the show she's not just the best hairstylist in town she also runs a very cool equine rescue farm look up long ear rescue on facebook and give them some support too 
Finally, don't forget you can get a free week of newspapers.com and read all about the Bugs Hassey killing, Frank Walker, Frank Looper. All of it as it happened. For your free week, go to murderetcpodcast.com slash newspapers. And thanks for listening. Here is what's coming up next time on Murder Etc. One of the strongest organized crime outfits in Southern history manages to scare even the people chasing it. We met there because the two representatives of the sheriff's office were afraid that if the word got out they wanted this task force, their lives and their family lives would be in jeopardy. As the outfit starts to come apart at the seams. He wasn't trying to get me arrested. He was trying to get me killed. Because he knew we would not give up coming out of the bank. Downfall in Dixie. On the next Murder Etc. cetera.